My name is Keith Beavers. I'm Gen X. Go to Spotify, type in the People's Court theme, and jam out. Specifically the bongos. What's going on, wine lovers from the Vine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and I am the Tastings Director of Vine Pair. Here we are, wine lovers, the Champagne Riots. You guys have been asking me to do something about this for a while, like almost four years now, and here we are. Get ready. Are you sitting down? This is ridiculous. this point in our story wine lovers champagne has figured out its thing it has gone from a still wine with a pinkish hue to a celebratory aristocratic friendly bubbly wine that is not unique so much to the world but unique to this area, which is so heavily populated and influential to the rest of France. It's close to Paris. It's on important rivers. Its main town, Reims, is the home of all the coronations of all these kings. An important town called Troyes, which I haven't mentioned yet, is a very important place in the history of Champagne for all these markets that happened when people came around, as I said in my research, from all of Christendom to buy the wares of this land. The export markets were doing well, especially Russia. And as the sale of this wine to the wealthy continued, the price of the wine and its extremely laborious production went up as well. But among all of this success and fun, there were tensions rising and bubbling from beneath. And that tension was between the growers and the champagne houses. Now, today, you've probably heard the term grower champagne. Well, what that means is that there are people that grow grapes in the Champagne region who do not sell all or some of their grapes to the Champagne houses, instead making wine for themselves, putting a label on it, and it's just like, that's it. There's your champagne. It's just not part of a big house. Also today, a lot of champagne houses also own their own vineyards as well. So not, they're not always looking to buy grapes. But in the early 20th century, it was very different. The houses had the capital to buy grapes wherever they wanted to and be able to bear the risk of exploding inventory because that was still happening. Not as much, but it was still happening. Storage facilities, which were immense, but even fundamentally, the houses were able to actually produce this wine, which is a very, like I said, it's, I mean, you guys know, this champagne is sparkling wine in general, the traditional method, 
with a, with with technology today, it's still difficult. But back in the day, my gash. And this is the days before co-ops. So what we have here is growers all over the Champagne region relying on the houses to buy their varieties. And if they didn't, there is really no alternative source of income. So a grower, a vine vigneron's income or revenue was dependent on selling grapes to the houses who would do all the work with all the capital, which is wild because there's, there was definitely more growers than there were houses. So the system favored the houses, not the growers. And at the time, there were no laws in place to protect either of them or both of them or one of the other. This is what was causing the tension. But that tension got compounded, if you will, beginning in the late 19th century into the 20th century, leading to a lot of unrest. In the late 19th century, there were significant periods of frost, significant periods of rain that reduced crops. And then in 1890, the phylloxera problem finally found its way to Champagne, depleting supply even more. And to add insult to injury, the vintages from 1902 through to 1909 were riddled with mold and mildew, reducing supply even more. Then a year later in 1910, that vintage was afflicted with hailstorms and flooding, resulting in a 96% loss of harvest. 96 but hey, champagne is popular. Through all this turmoil and all this trauma, the export markets still wanted their wine. So the champagne houses needed to supply their demand. The vineyards were not producing the greatest quality and the yields were consistently low. These champagne houses started looking elsewhere for grapes. I'm not talking like just in France, which they did. They looked actually grabbed grapes from the Loire Valley in the Languedoc, but they also were getting grapes from Spain and from Germany and making champagne with it, sparkling wine in champagne, but not with the varieties grown in champagne. <laughs> what? Okay. I should say not all the houses, but houses were doing this. So the growers who are not doing well financially because of all this turmoil, and in addition to that, these houses going, you know what, we're good this year, we're good. You're what? No, we're good, we're good. Why, how are you making wine? Don't worry about it. The growers are enraged to the point where they actually petition the government for help. And the French government gets involved, and their solution is this. They passed a law requiring that at least 51% of a champagne wine, sparkling champagne, needed to come from the actual region. It's like the 75% rule here, here in the United States. But this is the thing. Some of these champagne houses were still buying cheap grapes from the Loire, from the Languedoc, from Spain, and from Germany, and they were continuing to drive down prices in their own region. They were literally going to these growers and saying, look, if you can't drive the price down to where I want it, I'm going to look elsewhere. I'm just going to say it. Quiet part out loud and all. Then they got even bolder 
because this tension was growing and growing and growing, the houses would actually hire these people called commissionaires who would go to the growers on behalf of the houses and negotiate prices. But they did it through bribes, threats, and even sometimes violence. And often, by the time these guys were done with the growers, the growers didn't make enough money to cover the costs of their own farming and harvest, leaving them poor. And this is when poverty among the grower community became widespread. The growers are poor. They're angry. They're watching their former clients grab cheap grapes from outside of the country, making wine that is not truly part of the region. And it just became too much. So they began, the growers, they began to riot. In the towns of Demarie in Haute-Villère, the home of where Dom Perignon was doing his work, growers intercepted trucks with grapes from the Loire and <laughs> pushed them into the Marne River. That's a lot of growers, a lot of very mad growers. They also went to the warehouses of producers known to actually produce these sort of non-champagne cheap renditions of the wine, grab the barrels and throw them into the Marne River. All this was around the town of Eparnay. Over about three miles northeast, the town of Ai, people's homes were being ransacked and pillaged and a fire was set which burned throughout the city. I mean, that's a lot. You have to be really in bad, dire straits to come to that. It got to the point where the regional governor sent an urgent telegraph to Paris saying, oh my God, we need help. He's quoted as saying, we are in a state of civil war. <laughs> what? And the French government sent 40,000 troops to this area, setting up Billet in every village. Billet is basically a civilian's home soldiers used as a headquarters. I actually stayed in one of the Loire Valley once. Pretty amazing. But the thing is, wine lovers, this wasn't the only problem Champagne was having among the growers and among the Champagne houses. Because the government's desperate attempt to quell the whatever unrest, the violence that was going on in this area, they said, okay, we need to define Champagne. So what even is the definition, the borders of the Champagne region? So the government got together and created the Champagne region as a law. This is before the Appalachian system even existed in France and said that the Department of the Marne and the Department of the Aisne, which is an, another department, these are named after rivers, are the Champagne region, completely excluding a region 70 miles south called the Aube, which also produced sparkling wine. In the eyes of the people of the Champagne region in this part of the Champagne region, and I guess the government, they thought the Obe was too far away from them, closer to Burgundy, and they considered it a foreign wine. <laughs> it's crazy. They actually thought that the Obe was not capable of producing the kind of Champagne that gained the reputation that it did in the two departments to the north. That's fighting words. And the O got really mad. And they started protesting. 
And before any crazy violence could <laughs> erupt again, the government's like, okay, okay, okay. This is what we're going to do. We're going to call the OBE a second zone. Therefore, it is part of Champagne, but is the second zone of Champagne. It's weird, but it happened. And in the OBE, everyone's like, okay, for now, that's cool. But then the wine growers in the Marne got mad because they were so happy with the fact that their department and Ain were champagne. They didn't want the Obe to be part of champagne because of what they had said earlier. They said it wasn't just capable of making great wine. So the growers in Marne started protesting and thousands of growers in the Marne, they burned vineyards. They destroyed cellars. They ransacked houses that they knew or thought were number one working with grapes outside France and the Champagne region, but also grapes that are from the Aube. They didn't consider the Aube the Champagne region. The region they considered that outside wine. So they were just destroying everything that had Aube grapes and Languedoc grapes and Loire grapes and Spanish grapes and German grapes. They just destroyed it. It was reported that hundreds of liters of wine were lost. And all of this happened between 1910 and 1911. And even up until World War I, the government had to come back in and negotiations were ongoing until the war broke out. And when World War I broke out, it stopped Everything, all the riots stopped, everything stopped because everybody wanted to fight for France and the Champagne region. <laughs> it's like, okay, we're done now. We're done. We're done. In the end, following the riots and the war, the government, the growers, and the houses collaborated and actually came to an agreement to define what would be the Champagne region that eventually in 1927 would actually become the appellation of Champagne. And the Marne was included, the Aube was included, and parts of the Aisne was included. And to deal with the collusion and fairness when it came to pricing, a classification system was established for the Champagne villages that would set up a price structure for the grapes. And this goes into any kind of wine region, especially in France, where we have tiers of quality. You know how in Burgundy you have Premier Cru and Grand Cru vineyards? Well, here in Champagne, they had Premier, Grand Cru and Premier villages. And how they did it was villages were rated on a numerical scale from 80 to 100 based on the potential quality of the varieties and the value of the grapes. So this way, the way they looked at it, the price of a kilogram of grapes would be set and the grower or growers would receive a fraction of that price, depending on the village and the rating and where it was located. So a Grand Cru village would receive a hundred percent. A Premier Cru would receive 95% because of their scores and kind of goes down from there. And this set up a stability structure because champagne, the, the weather here is crazy. Um, 
the 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 way you make this wine is laborious. It's extremely popular. It's just wild how it's not easy to make. It, it, it's un, the the it's the weather's unpredictable, and it is the most sought after wine, almost one of the most sought after wines in the world. Now today it's not so regulated, but the classification system is definitely still used to decide pricing going forward. And this is a really interesting story, but it really was something that fed into the Appalachian system of France being created. Because even in the 1930s, this this was a big deal. People, this was a violent, crazy time. People were poor and upset and it was crazy. This lasted in the, this lingered in the minds of the Chimpanois for a long time. And in 1935, two very prominent winemakers, the head of Moet at the time, Robert Jean de Vogue, and I don't know if that last name was pronounced correctly, and a winemaker from just south of Epernay, who was very prominent in the region, Maurice Doyard. They together rallied all the growers in all the houses because they had so much influence to create what was called the Commission of Chalon. This way, there was stability. The houses and the growers were in constant communication about how to move forward and make this all work. And then six years later, as this commission idea evolved and probably came a little bit complicated, the foundation of the CIVC was created, which is a very big deal. And what that means is the Interprofessional Committee of the Wines of Champagne. And right here is really, really the champagne we know today. Because this committee is still in existence today. And from the 1950s on, the Champagne region has thrived and the sales would keep rising and peaked in 2007. It's a long haul. And this committee is pretty significant because after all the riots and after all this unrest, when things were going pretty well, one thing that cropped up very prominently were cooperatives. So you had now growers, houses, merchants, and cooperatives. So what this committee did was they just grouped everybody into two columns, the growers and the co-ops in one column and the merchants and the houses in another column. And each of these groups had their own president who would negotiate between them. So it's a nice structure. It feels like you can get something done if you have a concern. And this committee, I don't, this is really interesting because it's pretty, there's a really great documentary out there called a year in champagne. You should definitely watch it because during the harvest in this documentary, you can see the growers and the houses adhering to the CIVC guidelines because this organization is charged with controlling the production, distribution, and promotion of wines of champagne, like all of it. It's also under, well, it also undertakes the fundamental research in the region. So it's constantly working to make sure that everything in Champagne is running like a well-oiled machine and nothing kind of gets out of whack. It's pretty, pretty awesome. They used to set the price, but up until the 19, I think 1990s, they don't do that anymore, but they do have big influence on everything that happens with Champagne. And the one thing you see in this documentary that really hits, man, is that the CIVC, they regulate the harvest and decide whether any, any of the 
any of the harvest should be blocked or retained as just juice. Like they're so concerned with the quality of these wines that they will, they highly regulate what happens during harvest and when you can harvest. It's pretty wild, but it works. And this is the really, this is the capper because this organization is actually financed by a levy on production and a tax on wine sales. So the entire region is finally okay with all this, you know, like it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's like, you know what? Tax me, take a percentage of what's going on because at least we have organized something here. I don't say organized chaos because harvest can be chaotic, but they have some sort of structure. And a final note about the CIVC is they're also the ones that fight and defend the name of Champagne. There was a big court case in 1959 in England that they won. There was also a cigarette company using champagne or a perfume. And there was a perfume using the champagne word that they got taken off those brands, which is pretty amazing. But alas, here in the United States, we can still use champagne as a name for a wine on a bottle. That's just the way it is. We have a little bit more to talk about with champagne. Wrap up some loose ends. Let's talk next week. Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week.